according to the traditional account, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he was reflecting on this dharma that he had, this realization he'd had that it was so subtle and profound that um, he really wondered if anybody could get it. And through a series of events, he ended up coming back to this group of five practitioners known as the group of five. When the Buddha had left home, he spent around six years engaged in, before his enlightenment, engaged in all kinds of different practices, including some uh, quite severe ascetic practices. You know, there were all kinds of practices going on in India in the day, probably to this day. And so um, he practiced with his fellow ascetics. That's what this group of five is, these five other ascetics. And they were... You know, they would eat so little food, they practically starved and did a lot of um, what called self-mortification and deprivation. And in fact, sometimes you'll see statues, Buddha statues, in which his body is, looks like a skeleton, and that's the ascetic Buddha. And so he finally, after his enlightenment, the Buddha thought, okay, the, the group of five, they're close. The way they said it, it, say it is... They only had a little dust covering their eyes, and so he thought they could understand, and he uh, went and uh, went back to them. And actually, it's a very sweet story because it says, uh, you know, they, they, by our standards, when the Buddha was, was engaged in what he called the middle way between, you know, being lost in sense pleasures on the one hand and... Uh, um, self-mortification on the other, and he, he was coming to this middle way. Really, I think he was still a world-renouncing ascetic by most standards. But we would still think of him as being quite ascetic, but, but by the standards of, of the group of five, he had gotten lazy and fallen off, kind of fallen off the wagon, so to speak. And so when they saw, the, the, saw uh, it wasn't the Buddha, Gautama, uh, Siddhartha uh, Gautama coming, they said... Uh, that's that lazy, uh, you know, he, he fell off the path. Let's not um, uh, have anything to do with him. But then when he came, they couldn't help themselves because, you know, it was their old buddy and they brought him out and how you doing and they made a seat and anyway. And uh, they said, how you doing, friend? And the Buddha said um, um, something to the effect of, wait, no, it's not okay to... He referred to himself as the Tathagata. It just means thus gone. There's a lot of different shades of meaning, what that really means, but that's how he referred to himself. And he just said, uh, wait a minute, it's not okay, you know, now that I've... He didn't say now that I'm the Buddha, but, you know, that, that, that it's, not okay, it's not fitting to refer to the Tathagata as friend. And they're saying, well, you know, you never had, had, had attained any special... You know, none of us have attained any special spiritual attainments, you know, so, you know, what's going on? And he explained and, and then gave a series of talks to the group of five. And the first talk he gave was called, it's basically called uh, putting in motion, setting rolling or putting in motion the wheel of Dharma. So according to the count, it's the very first talk given to the group of five. And it was on the middle way, which I just named, And then it's the Four Noble Truths, which includes the Eightfold Path. That was the talk. And at the end of the path, excuse me, at the end of the talk, one of the group of five, Kondanya, had this realization upon hearing the discourse. Now, he was probably pretty ripe and ready to go. Remember I had said something the other night of what would it be if you you heard a talk of the Buddha? So... We don't know what was going on in these people's minds, but he was just ready to go. He heard the the discourse, and then he uttered this phrase, which is a standard uh, phrase of realization. That uh, there's a few really pithy phrases that pop up in the Pali texts, a a handful of really standard ones that show up a few times, and so they're really important and they encapsulate a lot. And he said, again, it's preserved in formalized language. 
But Condogna had the realization, all things that are of a nature to arise are of a nature to pass away. All things that are of a nature to arise are of a nature to pass away. And th through that deep realization, he, he had his great liberation. And I don't recall if he entered first stage of enlightenment or full enlightenment. But, and, and the Buddha, uh, I, it sounds like the way it's preserved, he was excited because in the English they actually have exclamation point marks. He says, Condonia's got knows, Condonia knows, he's got it. And so he's considered the first, and, and it's this heavy language. He said, you know, now there were two arahants in the world, the Buddha and Condonia, so it's a big deal. And then over time and other discourses, the, these group of five, he gave other talks, and eventually they all gained their enlightenment. So what was it that happened to Condonia? If I ask you, any of you, or you to ask anyone on the street, and you may not say it in this language, but basically he's talking about impermanence. And if you ask anything, you don't have to say it in that form. If you come up to someone on the street and ask them, are all things that are of a nature to arise, of a nature to pass away? You could just say, you know, do things last or are things permanent? Everybody would say, well, no, 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 no. Of course, everything's impermanent. The earth won't last. Galaxies, stars don't last. Physicists say even black holes over a very, very long time, it might be longer than the age of the universe, which is something, I think they say 13.72 billion years, I think they got it down pretty close since the Big Bang, eventually through uh, quantum effects, uh, uh, anyway, they would evaporate away too. So, you know, so we, we know that, but what is it that happens? We don't live our lives from that perception. Uh, uh, it, it, we don't live our lives as if it's true, right? What would life look like for us if we really got that deeply, not as an intellectual concept, that's important too, for sure, but actually on some deeper level, some experiential place, some, some, something shifted in us and we lived out from that perception. And so I want to bring in this idea of perception because really what happened to Condonia was something shifted in his his perspective or his perception. And we could think of, one way you might think of the whole Dharma is it's a training in allowing a shift in perception to happen from our ordinary daily life, the way that most of us as human beings just naturally would go about living into something different. And, and so the whole idea of insights is to, they're in service of, when you have an insight, something's changed in your perception. You understand something. This is what I'm going to talk about tonight. I want to go into some detail around the different ways that insights can arise through samadhi. So I'm going to come back to the samadhi a little and say a little about that, but in particular then how it relates more directly from within the samadhi to insights. How, we can, how they can, these insights can arise just spontaneously out of the depth of the practice or in sometimes how we actually choose to turn the mind, incline the mind to practice in a particular way, aiming to, to uncover, look at insights. And then how insights also come about both from just as realizations but for, as intentional practice when we're not in deep samadhi and even in daily life practice. And all of these are, aspects are, I think, all equally as important at least it's not just when we're in some deep meditative state and some you know mystical process happens and you know and maybe that's fine, but some some of these other levels also, including daily life, are we don't want to pass them over. And I think at the very least, at the very least, they are as important as what we traditionally might normally might think of as the meditative insight. So I want to spend some time on all of those, but they're all. Um, versions of, of perceptions, a shift in perception. And matter of fact, just to give you the idea, let me read something that comes from a different spiritual tradition, but I love it. And, um, and it gives a flavor of, of 
ordinary daily life perceptions and how, uh, not how, but a sense of another view on what it might look like if perceptions had changed. And this is from one of my very first teachers. Uh, his name is Hari Das. He's not a Buddhist teacher. He's in Santa Cruz. Uh, he was my t- uh, I started my practice in 1970. He was actually, I lived in a yoga ashram. I was in the Hindu-oriented yoga world for several years, moved into the Buddhist world in maybe like 76 or something like that, 77. So for my first six or seven years of my practice, I was in this other spiritual traditions, lived in an ashram for a couple of years. And and this man, Hari Das, was my second teacher. Uh, And this is a quote from him. So he says, Our lives are based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impair our ability to function. What a statement. <laughs> so let me read that again. It's not, it's not a Buddhist, but I, it, it, I, he will let him in the club. He's a Buddhist <laughs> dharma as far as I'm concerned. Our lives are, so can this be true? Are our lives really based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impair our ability to function? You know, if you ask anybody on the street what's going on, who they are, they'll say, well, I know what's going on, and I'm me, and this is the world. He's saying our basic perceptions, he's not using that word, this are actually, in some ways, a fundamental misperception. So it's this idea of shifting perceptions. So let me proceed with the quote. These assumptions are more than intellectual beliefs. And then he says, quote, I am a human mind and a human body, unquote. So let me just let this land again here. He's saying... The notion, that whether it's an intellectual idea or just experiential sense, that I'm a human mind in a human body, if you, if you ask people if that's true, they say, well, yeah, are you crazy? Of course I'm a human mind in a human body. He's saying that fundamental notion is thoroughly out of touch with reality, and furthermore, it seriously impairs our ability to function. So maybe this is, I don't know, is, do we just brush him off? Or is there something worth investigating here? So he goes on. In fact, this notion is so deeply rooted in our consciousness that few of us would ever think of questioning it. That's probably true. We live our entire existence from this point of view, seeking those things, situations, and people that make us happy and avoiding those that make us unhappy. But even when conditions seem ideal to us, There is always that nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will eventually change, that the security and happiness of the moment will ultimately be lost. In truth, we are never totally at peace. There is always something to be anxious about. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. Heavy stuff. You have, of course, need to look into your own life to see if it lands or rings true. It lands for me. I was uh, having an interview time with someone, just uh, which is why I was not in this last sit, and we were talking about, and this person is sharing someone I've known for a while and going through quite a bit of um, real serious things, and they're going to be okay, but I mean, they've got some stresses and difficulties in their life. And... Um, I was sharing with him that um, I happened, because I know when we're sharing more personally, and I was sharing that I happen, I've been through plenty of stresses in my life, and I'm a human being. I can still have stresses. And mostly I'm just, I happen to be going through a phase where, and I, I'm appreciative because uh, these things you never know, where things are going okay. Basically going okay right now in my life. And then I was noticing, uh, but telling him, but I still notice how my mind can find something to worry about. I actually consider it a privilege to be able to suffer in that way. I mean that. And this gets into the whole thing of privilege. Listen, I think it's a privilege to be able to uh, walk 
down my street and not worry if I'm going to get shot because a lot of people don't have that. I think it's a privilege to be able to drive my car to the store because some people don't have cars. There's a lot of things around privilege. You know, we can look at it in society and all of that, which I think is worthwhile investigating. But it's also worthwhile investigating. It's not to diminish my suffering in any way. But when I, you know, when I step back more out of it and notice, it's more being aware of that quality in my mind. And I don't want to overstate it, but I have a lot, I think I have a pretty equanimous, peaceful mind. But I can also notice the places where there's some agitation or worry, and it gets subtler and subtler. And so he's saying, uh, even when conditions, what did he say? Even when conditions seem ideal to us, there is always the nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will change. That may not that exact way, but so we can look into our own minds and see if it's true. And pardon me for a moment, I want to find one more quote. Um, this is from Ajahn Sumedho. I think it says the same thing in a different way. The human habit of clinging to desire is ingrained. We in the West think of ourselves as sophisticated and educated, but when we really begin to see what is going on in our minds, it is rather frightening. Most of us are horribly ignorant. We do not have an inkling of who we are or what the cause of suffering is or of how to live rightly. Not an inkling. We'll come back to Hari Das to finish the quote. He goes on to say, spirituality, so he's saying that ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. And he goes on. So, actually, before I go on, so I think I take this as an invitation, not as a truth statement from this guru, Hari Das, or from Samedo, but as an invitation to look into our own lives and see, to notice what goes on in our minds. And, of course, we're a mix. I talked about this a, a couple of nights ago. Depending on the time and the phase of our life or what's going on, some of us may have a lot more of the suffering, less percentage, not so much of the happiness. Others, I'm more on the other. I'm mostly going through a happy time, but it's not that my mind can't, you know, we can find something to complain about. You know, if, if I forgot to bring my bag of chocolates with me on retreat... I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating. Mostly it's okay. But, you know, you could see a mind like, ah, oh, geez. Got to call my wife up. How am I going to get my chocolates? You know, there's something we can suffer over. Spirituality means learning how to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. Let me read that again. Spirituality means le- learning how to live life as free. So we're going to have to say, what do these mean? To, be, to live in a free, as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. Real spirituality has nothing to do with stoicism or self-denial or disregard for worldly life. So I, I, it's one of my favorite passages. I haven't... And, just wanted to offer that and share it to you. So we could think of what will support us to live life, I'll just use his language, I happen to like it, as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. That's not so traditional language about the ultimate way that Nibbana or Nirvana, if you will, is, is talked about. But I think it's, it's I like it. Sometimes some shifts in perception are needed. That's where the insights come in. And then sometimes we need to do some practice. We need to back up and do some practices that can help bring the insights, shift our perception so we really can see what's going on. To see when we're really resting in the stream of non-clinging and to notice we really see the ever subtler places where we don't know how to let go. Or we can't let go. Even sometimes we know we're suffering. You know, if you're holding a burning coal in your hand, nobody has to tell you to drop it. It just happens. But how many times have you held the um, metaphorical, uh, you know, the burning coal in your hand, and you know it's burning. And you know 
that it's your own mind that won't let go. And still, something can't let go, and it's not ready, it, ready to let go. It can be kind of mysterious sometimes. How letting... Some people sometimes ask me, well, how do you let go? I, I, I don't know the answer. I know letting go can happen, and sometimes I know how to do it, but I don't know, so I know how to say to do it. So we have to... It's, it's, uh, we have to it's a learning that happens. It's, it's an ability, it's a skill to rest in that stream of dharma, that stream of non-clinging. So let me talk about uh, some of the ways that uh, these shifts of perception can happen and how we can practice in ways, you know, we can't make anything happen. Have you noticed, I'm just curious here on retreat, for example, um, like you can't, in your meditation, you can't make anything happen? You can't sit down and say, okay, in this sit, this is the kind of samadhi I'm going to have. And, my, and, I'm, and I'm not going to worry about this thing. I know I shouldn't worry about it. I'm going to let it go. Okay, I'm going to let it go. And you know, so In a moment, sometimes you can. No question about it. What we really can do when we look closer is we can strengthen the conditioning factors so that we're, things are more and more strongly inclined to manifest in a certain way. You really can't make anything happen. If I were, were standing outside and had a nice rubber ball and I was bouncing it off the wall of the building and I threw the ball, that's not a guarantee it's even going to hit the building then. A gust of wind could come by, a bird could crash. I mean, it's probably going to hit the wall. I can't make it hit the wall, though. I'm strengthening the conditioning factors for the ball, putting everything into place. There. So that's a lot of what we're doing. We're strengthening the conditioning factors. When we realize we can't make anything happen, uh, it could be scary. I think it's liberating. You're off the hook. You've never been on the hook. There's no hook. But we can build a hook and put ourselves on it. (laughs) But it also, it's good news because part of the perception we get, and this is the key, it's not just we perceive, and I'm going to talk about some other perceptions besides impermanence, but for example, this, this very important insight into one of the, what's called one of the characteristics of existence, which is a very heavy, weighty phrase, but I'll explain in a few moments. Impermanence being one of them. Along with that, is equally as important that comes right along with it. And I think this is the real nut or the kernel of it. It doesn't happen for no reason. Things don't just, you know, just magically appear for no reason. Things happen due to causes and conditions. They happen for some cause or reason. And it's just like impermanence. If I say to someone, well, do you think... Pick any event. Do you think it just happened for no reason? Or was there something that made it happen? Some reason, well, yeah, there was some cause. We may not know what it is. But we don't live our lives as if it's true. But if we really get that, we can start to take some ownership for the actions we make. Because how does it inform how you might live if you live from a deep perception a living, lived, understanding reality of impermanence, moment by moment, or to some, what, however much more. And not only that, but you live from the perception, the reality, the understanding, not forgetting when we're making choices that things happen because of causes and conditions. Because what might you do? One possibility is, is if you got in touch with your intention and your aspiration and what you really want your life to be about in the deepest and highest sense and kept that alive for you, then when we're making choices in all areas of our lives, Is this strengthening the conditioning factors so that I live more truly, more authentically from my highest intention and aspiration? Is it heading in that direction or not? That can inform wise and skillful choices. 
So this is why you get a sense of having these perceptions become alive for us is so important. Because if we don't have them, we're just carried along by our likes and dislikes and the same thing that we always talk about, wanting to avoid, unple- you know, as we said the other night, no one's here is trying to have less of what you want and more of what you don't want in life, right? We said the other night. Nothing wrong with that, but if, if, if that is the deciding factor in how we choose, it's not our commitment, it's not our intention, and it doesn't mean we're perfect about it. We're human beings. We're going to, listen, we're going to fall flat on our face many times and screw it up. You're not doing anything wrong, by the way. By definition, until you're a Buddha yourself, there are places of greed, hatred, and delusion still in the mind. So every time, whatever, you screw up, or if I, I'm just saying it that way, but, you know, whatever, that's Buddha training. Oh, Oh, yep. Still not a Buddha. Oh, yeah, there's still some great hatred and delusion. Not there. Things change due to causes and conditions. What would be uh, supportive to strengthen the conditioning factors to move me forward from there in a skillful way? That's the whole path of Dharma practice. So one way that insights come, one of the traditional ways I'll start with is... What we might associate, I don't, what I'm about to say does not only have to come from the deepest places of samadhi, but I think it's a way that we tend to think of it, so I'm going to talk about it from that perspective. What are called these three characteristics is a classic traditional way, one of the ways that we think of, of insights arising into one or more of these. If you care about the Pali, it's anicca, dukkha, anatta, which we normally translate as impermanence, Dukkha, which we've translated as suffering, uh, it's not, you know, we're kind of, it's an okay word to use. It doesn't capture all the meaning. You know, when I, uh, thank you for the person who left the dark chocolate in my shoe. Uh, by the way, I'm going to use it in the talk in a moment, but um, uh, uh, I'm actually feeling happy right in this moment, reflecting that someone put that in there knowing it was going to make me happy. I just tear up practically thinking about it. I'm so, it glands my heart that you just thought to do that. And it happens to be a kind of chocolate I really like. And Eugene didn't want his. I got two. He did appreciate the gesture, so he got that happiness. Right? So even telling you about it right now, I'm not suffering in the moment. I'm actually... Eating the chocolate was not suffering, but it's still dukkha. How can that be? Because the real meaning of dukkha, if you look sort of etymologically, the, the, the root meaning, my understanding is it's something to, uh, like a wheel or axle of a wheel that's out of kilter. So what has happened if you ride on, of a cart? If you're on a cart and the wheel's off-center, what do you get? You get a bumpy ride. So the idea of dukkha, if you look up in the Pali Text Society, Pali English Dictionary, now it's all online, but if you look at the printed version, it's a big, huge, thick book, and it's not one of these uh, eight and a half by 11s, it's like a 10 by 14, and I think it's like 10 point font too, and it's like two or three pages to fully uh, uh, cover all the shades of meaning of dukkha. So if I had to pick one word, this is just me, I don't, you know, most people say suffering, that's fine. I would pick unreliable or unsatisfactory. That chocolate, so suffering is unsatisfactory, I think we can all agree on that. But that chocolate, it was satisfactory, but it, it's not inherently satisfactory. Why? Because of the first truth, impermanence. It's not going to, it's going to, it might, you know, the pleasure, um, we don't want to deny that there's some benefits in the moment. And it can feel good. It's not going to ultimately solve your problem. And I want to tell you, I've had a lot of chocolate in my day. (laughs) I keep trying to fix my problem (laughs) through chocolate. (laughs) 
I'm being a little humorous there, but there's some truth to that. And, um, you know, we don't want to make finding happiness, we don't want to be unrealistic about the kind of pleasure that comes through sense pleasures and ordinary experiences, but we don't want to expect finding our happiness in experience or circumstances to offer more than it's capable of offering. I don't expect the chocolate to, to ultimately solve my problem, is what I'm saying, right? But we all keep trying. Maybe we won't stop as human beings, I don't know. But we can learn to let go more and more and more and rest in the flow of Dharma, not just dragged around like, by our desires like slaves. So uh, when, we, when we really get it about like impermanence, you know, that can help sh- shift the mind from clinging. When we really get it about the inherent unsatisfactoriness of any experience, it can make a shift. And I mentioned this the other night, perhaps, rather than our entire strategy for happiness or well-being being tied up and definitely having to have certain experiences and definitely not having to have others, it can be more, how am I relating to whatever it is that's actually happening? Can I, find, can I, can I make, start making shifts in my relationship with, with what I'm, I'm using this conventional language with myself, with all experience? Yeah. And then the third characteristic, we're not going to be able to, to do it justice tonight uh, because it's, it's usually the thorniest or trickiest for many people is this thing that no self, selflessness, not self. And it's really a lifetime of, of not only of practice and exploration to really, for most of us, it's maybe the last not to untangle. But uh, I could talk about it in many ways, but it does not mean that when you realize no self, you're going to poof and disappear. So in the conventional self, and the Buddha talked this way, he talked in sort of this uh, ultimate language and the conventional language, and he would go back and forth. So I'm going to stick on the conventional side of language for now. But when you look deeper, when the the perception comes more clear about the nature of what is this mind and body that we call me. Well, the other characteristics certainly come in around impermanence. And there's some models that get used. Some of you know about the five aggregate model, the six sense-based model. If you don't know this, uh, let that go. You'll hear it many times in the Dharma world. Stick around, you'll you'll get that. Don't worry about that. As uh, one person I know said, we come to discover that we're we're not nouns, we're verbs. That there's a a a changing process of of conscious of experience that's arising, passing away due to causes and conditions. And when this collection of changing processes come together, which includes consciousness itself, and um, you know it put it comes together and, and as a person. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that for now because I don't want to go off into that too much. And if that didn't click for you, just don't worry about it. Well, there's in, in, what can happen, I've, I've had these experiences. For me, they've, the way I'm about to describe it has happened more in deeper meditative states. But it may happen outside of, the, of that context too. Is, for example, I've had experiences. So take a moment right now and just feel what, have some experience. Feel into your body. You could look around with your eyes. You could hear sounds. Just eyes open, closed. Just connect, experience something. So you're having some experience. Now if I ask you, can you notice that the experience is changing? So if, you're, if it's visual, you can see it's changing because just look up here, right? It's not staying the same. I'm waving my arms and you know, swaying my body. So you can see it's a changing experience. Now, what happens probably for many of us a lot of the time is what most predominantly pops out to our awareness is the experience itself. And then if we make a point to notice, we can say, well, yeah, I see that it's changing. But mostly just on its own, kind of unconsciously, it's the experience itself. That can flip completely around. 
And, and when it's happening, it doesn't seem strange at all. But what actually is, is most predominant in your awareness is, is change, is the impermanence itself. And then if you ask me, I could say, well, if I make a point to, yeah, I can notice the experience itself. But it's actually the phenomenon, the reality of, of anicca, of impermanence, is just that perception has just been illuminated. It's suffused everything, and that awareness is there, and I'm not trying to do it or anything. It's just become alive. When you can have that level of experience, um, 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 you don't have to ask yourself, you know, parts of clinging and identity, especially for everything. So if, if it's it, your own mind and body, is part, when that perception is happening, that truth is revealed. It, it's revealed for everything, even, even what I call myself. The idea of these, and, and so on, for these other, other uh, characteristics of, of, do, of, of suffering and, and no self, they're all tied together. So that's an example of some of the kind of classic ways that might, people might talk about insights, and it's important. I wanna, I'm going to come to some other ways that insights can come, uh, but I want to pause here for a moment because... From my experience, that kind of insight that I just described tends to come out of when the samadhi's good, the mind's clear and stable, and really, as I said the other night, I can't remember if I said it to a small group or to the whole group, that samadhi's like making the mind, either you can think of it as an electron microscope, very finely tuned, or like a Hubble telescope. So it's that level of perception that allows us to really look deeper to what is already true right here. It's not like we're gaining something that's not already before us, but we're able to perceive below, if we could say, the surface appearance. And so part of why we put so much attention on samadhi is in service of these kind of... um, uh, realizations, and they don't have to. You don't have to go looking. These realizations can just arise from our practice. We can just just stay with our practice, stay with our practice, and then many people find that that insights, when in their time, when the conditions are ripe, arise, the, uh, the, the, due to causes and conditions, the insights arise, and we didn't go looking. We're just you know with our practice. You know, maybe it's like if you had a, if your mind was a Hubble telescope, you, you can see you don't have to go look, it's just a mind, but wherever it lands, it's gonna, that view's going to come in, kind of. Or if your mind's an electron microscope, you don't have to say, okay, now I'm going to try to look at something really small. It's just how it is. And so just to pause for a few moments back on the topic of samadhi, because I think we, as far as in the course of this retreat, um, I felt very happy with the instructions that were given, and it was very complete, and everybody got what they needed on actual meditation instructions. We didn't spend, we just because of the amount of time we had on the talks, we didn't go into a lot of detail, and, and it's not necessary here, on explaining you know, what's the nature of jhana and how, unpacking all the ways it can manifest and all the ways samadhi, even forgetting about jhana, can, un, can reveal themselves. Just to say that uh, all the, you know, I mentioned the other night that one basic distinction in how concentration can arise is that the mind can become more narrowly focused and it really feels like that electron microscope. And, and I called it one pointedness. And you can become so good at concentrating kind of on the point, on one thing that you, you just don't notice other things and you would actually lose connection with your body and all that kind of stuff. And I said another way it can go naturally is it can open up and it becomes, that, that first kind I call exclusive because you're exclusively on one thing and it excludes all other awareness. This other kind is, is inclusive, just as concentrated, but it feels different. The mind is just as still only we haven't shut down awareness of other, uh, it's not better or worse, it's just different. We haven't shut down some of the other mental processes so we can still feel our bodies. The awareness of the body comes in and of the mind. So it's open, it's inclusive awareness because it includes everything. Different kind of, and I, uh, instead of one-pointedness, I just call that one unification of mind just to make a distinction. 
I'm not going to go into more detail about samadhi tonight, but just to know there are many things we pay attention to when you're working with teachers and how samadhi unfolds. All the different experiences that come along with it about whether you're having bliss or it's calm and smoothed out, whether you're seeing lights or sounds. Most people don't, but some do. Uh, uh, energies move in the body or it's just a sense of expansiveness or clarity or stillness or peace. How, well, all those experiences that kind of color our perception and then the stillness, the unmovingness itself, the clarity, the, the electron microscope or t- telescope itself. We pay attention to all of those things. And we, uh, um, we start to notice, is it feeling like we're sort of absorbing off, as uh, this word absorption, into those experiences? So I just want to go into the bliss of the light and leave everything else behind. That's okay. Or is it opening more into the... So it feels embodied and I'm more connected than ever in my body and suffused in the body. We watch how it goes because uh, we, what we're trying to do here, and this will be different teachers will do different things, when we're working with people, just know we would want to notice what happens, and as I said the other night, if it's heading in that exclusive way, we would tend to consciously have people turn their attention to the body and suffuse it, so we stay connected with changing experiences, even as the samadhis, because we, do, we want to have changing experience so that our microscope or telescope can perceive the nature of changing experience, which is that it's impermanent, it's inherently unsatisfactory, and it's not self. That was quick on the samadhi, but that's the best I'm going to do tonight. So, uh, you know, that's all you need. To, you know, you just keep practicing and practicing, and then you, we just keep an eye on it. You don't have to remember all that, and it's not for you to stir your mind up keeping an eye on uh, We've got it covered. And if it happens at home, you know, whatever, you email us or call us up or whatever. I should say that another way people can choose to practice, which is different, is they also develop the, the samadhi, but then actually choose to incline the mind towards looking at insights. And so, for example, people might, you know, you get into the samadhi and then consciously not just practice and and from the practice, the insights will come, but actually turn the mind constantly to investigate, to look, what's the nature, it may not be in words, but what's the nature of my body? Really look, look to perceive the impermanence, the selflessness, the, the dukkha in it. And so you can look for, it's just different flavors, so both styles work. Okay, so that's, and that's the kind, and sometimes people think it's going to be like, you know, dramatic, like the second coming, and we've got to, ha- you know, got to really, like I said, you know, your whole perception is so altered that it's, you're really perceiving impermanence and not so much the experience. So that's kind of dramatic, it's, it's, it sounds. Well, what about a second way that insight can arise? What about when we talk about here, times when, what, do you, what have we been saying, when you can't concentrate, you're, you're in formal practice, hindrances are up, your mind won't shut the heck up, and it's just, uh, uh, and you're reliving this thing or whatever, and you're suffering in some way, or just the whole range of other experiences, your body is not cooperating, or whatever's going on, everything else. This is an important place, it's at least as important as the way that many people tend to think the real insights come from the deep samadhi that I just mentioned, this is a very important place. And it's it's kind of in the spirit of what I mentioned uh, in my last talk when I said I got just as interested in my suffering as I was in my bliss, and that really was a big shift in my practice. It's a tremendous opportunity, and it's an important opportunity. We don't want to miss the opportunity. And I I would go so far, I I don't know if this is the Buddha, but this is just me. It's possible this may be a more important place for insights, actually. It's another layer, another way, another level of looking at where we, we do fixate and we do 
uh, uh, create suffering, and we do get caught in some sense of self, or we can't be, we can't find the equanimity or the peace in relationship to whatever this thing is that's happening. And it's really a gift. So, uh, you know, I don't wish anyone suffer. Actually, it'd be fine with me. We've had a nice, pleasant time, and there are people who come on retreat sometime and. You know, they'll come and say, oh, my, my last retreat, I was just struggling, but I'm so, this retreat, I'm just smoothed out and it's peaceful. It's great, wonderful. Or many pe- Sometimes people have lots of retreats like that. They don't get a lot of the bumpiness. So great. We don't ha- have to go seeking the suffering. You can, as I mentioned, that it, it can be a, a, a respected path of practice. But when it comes... If we hold that attitude that everything's our teacher and what is have, that's what you got in the moment. What are you going to do with what you got? You could fall into the old patterns, but we've tried that our whole life. You know, get rid of this or hold on to this or I'm not getting this. Or, how's that been going for you, by the way? That strategy. Okay? How's that working out? Or we can start to make a shift. Okay, wait a minute. This is showing me something. Yeah. I can't be at peace with this. Why not? Maybe it's worth doing some investigation. Or maybe it's not an investigation. It's just the simple process of being present. And sometimes, again, the, 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 the insights will come up. And they may be insights like I described earlier, or they may take many different forms. We might realize just certain... Uh, unhelpful patterns, mental, you know, psychological, emotional, whatever kind of patterns that we hadn't seen before. And sometimes just shining the light of mindfulness on them when they become more revealed. And they, sometimes they self-liberate. We don't have to do anything. Oh, it, it, it needed to be seen. And it can let go. Or sometimes we might, our intuition might be there's more work. that We actually have to do some working around, some processing maybe. This is an important place. Jack Cornfield tells a story, if any of you have read his book, A Path with Heart. I believe it was in that book in the first chapter. It's been a long time. but uh, and He talks about when he was, after practicing for years, some period of time in Asia, and he came back first to this country. And he said something to the fact that, you know, he could sit for six to eight hours through fiery pain. But he was, I think he said, you know, he's emotionally immature and he was having, you know, a whole issues, whatever it was, I don't remember exactly, around relationships and just in what we might think of being quite ordinary. But there were whole patterns that hadn't had a chance to be revealed. And there was a whole other place where the potential for greed, hatred, and delusion and suffering was still there. And so, one of the ways to think about what we're doing is it's shifting the condition. We ultimately want to not be driven by our conditioned patterns, but we also want to, what we're really doing is shifting the conditioning of our minds from this reactivity to more wholesome, you know, uh, able to find equanimity and peace and compassion and all these Dharma qualities. Well, how is it that you... Um, you know, you can't see your conditioning. Can you see it? Where is it? You can only get to your conditioning indirectly when you encounter some experience and then whatever it is, uh, you know, some neural patterns or conditioned patterns happen. You see how you relate or how you react to the situation. It's lit up some neural pathway or it's, it's illuminated some pattern that you hadn't seen. So we can indirectly get to it. So it's actually important. Your suffering is important. I used to think early, being in this, these yoga traditions, and also I was young, I was 18 years old when I started, and I was super naive and idealistic. And I had this idea that it was, you know, they used language like God, and there the ideas actually sounds pretty nice. You know, it's like merging in oneness with God. They would talk like that. And listen, you can sign me up for that. It sounds pretty good. And uh, maybe people attain, and you can actually have meditative states that have that kind of flavor. We wouldn't use that exact language, right? Um, They're great, they don't last. 
impermanent. Dukkha, inherently unsatisfactory. The real satisfactory in the moment. Take it from me, and it's not just me. Many people here and many others can tell you, uh, touching those spaces is not going to ultimately solve your problem. You can still go home and get whatever, you know, in an argument with your spouse. Because those patterns, are st- the seeds are still lying dormant, waiting to sprout. The potential is still there to create suffering. So the difficulties are doing us a favor. So if, say, for example, you're here on retreat. So now it's not only when you're sitting in formal in meditation and the difficulties arise, but now it's, it's also I want to bring this out into daily life. And that's, we get a flavor of it, not only when we leave retreat, we'll, it's, we'll get all of that, whatever that is for you, but also when you're here on retreat, you get to see when we're going around and taking care of business and, and uh, we forget sometimes... And what can happen is, say, for example, if some aversion comes up around a situation, whether you have a strong tendency, it's happening a lot, or it just happens once in a while, um, however much or little it happens, but when that comes up, when we fall into the trance, in other words, we're caught in it, we're not seeing, perceiving what's happening, we've lost our mindfulness, we think, whatever, the other person really is an idiot, or what you know, or you know, they really are whatever. And why did they? And you know, we're just in that world. If we can have the mindful awareness about what's happening, it shifts the whole game. Oh, let me look at this. Wait a minute. What's one of my intentions? This may not be yours, but I'm using my example. Oh yeah, my heart to never show, uh, uh, shut down for any other beings. Well, what just happened? It shut down. Thank you. So it's not about that they should go through the food line faster. It's more about we can use the opportunity. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes we, we do need the people you know, in your life to whatever faster. So we want to take care of ourselves. Of course. I'm not going to stop that. So when we're out in the world, and so I think what we think of as ordinary daily life experiences, to me are at the very least as important as all these other types and ways that insights can come. And it's possible, it's hard, maybe the most important. It could be. We don't have to set up a hierarchy, but let's just, they're all, but they're not less than. So when we go home, and maybe depending on what level of concentration you have in daily life, People can have a lot of concentration in daily life, but you know, for most of us, we kind of come in and out. We're not in retreat mode. The mind's different in daily life, whatever that is. We don't have to think, "Oh, my practice is no good because um, I'm just not concentrated." You know, I remember I was uh, in one of my very first retreats. Uh, I don't remember, maybe in the '70s. I was sitting. A, I can't remember. Is sitting a ten-day retreat, driving home at the end sobbing in the car because after practicing 10 days of non-clinging I was clinging worse than ever to the beautiful states of samadhi that I was about to lose it's a lot of suffering it took some time uh, some maturation in my own practice to really get it that it's not about the states it's about a mind, it's about a liberation, and that liberation is, can, can be true. That freedom, whether we're in ordinary daily life consciousness or we're in meditative states and, and everything, it's like it's, it's through the whole spectrum of what's possible in human consciousness. Right? All of it is asking, you know, can... Really, it's a question. I love what uh, Hari Das said, but I'd like to pose it more as, as a, uh, I guess, a question or an invitation. Rather than telling you, because Hari Das said it, so it must be true, that the, the purpose of spirituality is to learn to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings rather than the point of view of dilemma. The invitation for all of us is or put your own adjectives in. That may not be the words that do it for you. I, I, I'm, I'm signed up for that. But uh, 
whatever your version is. The invitation is, what will support me? What will strengthen the, the conditioning factors? What will, what's good and useful to live more fully, more authentically, more deeply from uh, a place of, um, not the place of dilemma, but as more, or really more of a free, conscious, and loving being. And then it's all about, well, we don't worry when, we, when, we, when we've gone on automatic pilot, we can't remember. Don't worry about that. Practice as much as you can, when you can, depending on your life circumstances. The more concentration we can carry in from retreats or in daily life, that gives us more power. Yes, so you know, for some of us, we don't want to create a suffering trying to meditate according to some formula that someone told you. You, know, you read in a book and it says, well, in daily life, if you expect anything, just forget it unless you sit three hours, five hours a day or whatever it is. Good luck with that. If you've got a, I mean, some of us can do it for sure, but you know, if you've got a, uh, a family and jobs and everything. So there's an interesting question here. We're not sitting in monasteries, professional meditators. But why can't we be professional meditators? Yeah? Is it really true that we're not professional meditators? I don't think so. Every moment, use what you have. However much mindfulness, however much concentration, however much clarity you have, that's what you, you work with in the moment. And you bring your best discernment, your best wise action that you can. You make your best choice. And we're not afraid because our attitude is, can I let life be my teacher? And if we can't stop being afraid, we can't stop the ill will, we can't stop the worry, the depression, whatever it is. We can't, if we can't, we find, I can't let go, I can't relax, I'm tense all the time. If we find, wow, um, I haven't got a clue how to let go. I don't know how to be kind to myself. Well, that's great, you know, he sits up there and he tells me all this and do the best you can and, and in the moment that sounds good, but you know what, I'm just, I'm my worst critic. I've just got a judging critical mind. Whatever it is, yeah, it's not pleasant, but you know what? That's giving us information. We're learning about ourselves. It's actually revealing that's the pattern. And every one of us have what I call our top ten tunes. Or what I mean is the, the, the ways that we, the main patterns that tend to create, we've probably got a lot more than that, but the main patterns that tend to create suffering. We probably share a lot in common, and we're all individual. And again, by definition, we're not Buddhists, so we all have those places. What perceptions can we cultivate? What qualities of mind can we cultivate so we can uh, see that more clearly? Those patterns, and not be lost in it, including if, you know, uh, confusion. What I realize is I'm trying to do what he's saying, but I, I don't know, I can't see. That's giving you information. We shift our whole attitude, and then uh, we actually are professional meditators. If you, right? But it just looks a certain way in the context of sitting at your desk at work or, or uh, working with your spouse or whatever who's challenging or difficult or whatever it is. That this is, this is what you bring that same discernment to. Right? So it's I'm going to end with just the idea that um, one of the ways that we can fall into misperception is this judging about uh, daily life practice versus uh, what it looks like on retreat. And I want to be very clear that like, I'm super big on retreats. I happen to have a young son and my retreat life's... Uh, I don't know when the next time we'll get to retreat. But... Um, um, I, I think retreats are, are very powerful. You must think so or you wouldn't be here. Or actually, maybe you didn't know it's your first retreat and your friend said, just come along. You didn't know what you're getting yourself into. Maybe, I don't know what you think. I think retreats are a huge, big deal. So I'm not diminishing them. 
All I'm trying to do is not diminishing the rest of our lives and the opportunities for growth and advancement that are there. It's a misperception. You know, we can miss what's before us. To end, I'd like to offer you a piece of water imagery. There's a lot of water imagery in the Pali Suttas. Lakes and rivers, the similes for the jhana has a lot of water. It shows up a lot in different ways. And there's this idea of enlightenment, which is talked about as a stage of enlightenment in, in, the, in the Theravada system called a stream entry. And there's this idea of entering the stream. And the idea of it is once it's defined in a certain way, and that, but the, the sense of it is, is that you've, you've so thoroughly entered or immersed yourself, you're so in the stream that it, it's just no going back because now that current of the Dharma, it's just not possible to go anywhere except to, for Nibbana. And it might take a few more lifetimes or whatever, but I mean, it's just you're on the express train to Nibbana. And I love that image, and I want to, uh, uh, I have adapted it a little bit because I would like to suggest, and this is not technically the definition of stream entry, but that same concept that actually every one of us are engaged in that process of there's the stream of Dharma. And literally true, every single person here is some of us are walking up to the stream, checking it out, some of us are putting our little toe in maybe up to our ankles or our waist, or some of us are out there paddling around, whatever. But we're all engaged in this process of encountering and entering this stream of Dharma. And it's true, even though, as I said the other night, there's many people here I don't, most of you I don't know well, but this I I know to be true for everyone here. And because things happen due to causes and conditions, well, what is it you've been doing here? I know you've been, all the stuff that's going on in your mind, but the, but the, the deeper thing you've been doing here is this practice which is aiming towards the higher good. And because that's been your intention and your aim, there's only one thing possible. Those qualities are going to strengthen because that's where you've been putting your effort. So you, it is not, how can I, a double negative, it's not possible that you not deepen in your Dharma practice. It cannot be. Sometimes if you're in a stream or a river, you know, like if we're trying to head south, you got your compass and all of a sudden you go around a bend and you're just going, wait a minute, we're going north. In your life, sometimes it's going to feel like it falls apart and you're heading in the wrong direction. But you know what? If you flew up in the helicopter over that river or stream and looked down, you see, yeah, it has some bends. Sometimes, but in the big picture, it's... So you get in the Mississippi River, what is it that's true? You get out in the middle of the river, you're going to the ocean. Is it possible for you to not go to the ocean? No way. That's the power of the momentum. That's what we're working on and developing, so that can't help but strengthen. Even if we feel like maybe I've lost something in the moment or I'm, I'm back to my grouchier self or whatever, these are the qualities that we're aiming for, so it cannot help but strengthen. So I say that to you as an ending, hopefully to help gladden our hearts, as, especially as we move. We're still here on retreat and have a lot of time, but as we move towards the ending and we're going to, you know, they, sometimes they say it in a way I like, they say, well, you know, the retreat never ends. It just takes a different form, and we call that daily life. So I like, I like that image. Yeah. So hopefully that can gladden our hearts and minds, knowing that you're not going to lose your good intention, your sincere intention. You might forget it in some moments. Maybe it's worthwhile to reflect on your, your Dharma intentions for a few moments every day keep it more alive. But, you know, ultimately there's the bends and terms, but we're heading one way. You're going to more... Liberation, more happiness, more freedom, and it's just not possible to be any other way for you. It's really uh, good news. You might hit a tree stump once in a while sticking out of the water. Okay, it happens. 
And then we deal with that and we move on. The stream continues. So uh, let's sit quietly for a few moments. May the the power of our good intentions, our wholesome intentions, be the causes and conditions for great happiness, well-being, and liberation for ourselves and, and for all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.